Check, check. Check, check. How far away uh, from the mic are you? Um, Like one cowabunga sign. Cowabunga sign? Like mm-hmm. gnarly. <laughs> oh, okay. all right, 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 right. Here I am. I'm here. Stop right. saying things. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for that really kind episode. I really, it meant a lot to me. Thank you so much, well, you guys. We, the first question is, how do you pronounce your last name? Oh, Bendinger. 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 Okay, so uh-huh. we were deba- debating Bendinger or Bendinger. 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 I know. It's Bendinger, right. unfortunately. As my grandmother, the- my grandma Babs used to say, I'm so sorry. It's such a bad last name. <laughs> no, it's a great last name. It's just, it was a mysterious last name. It was like, is it a hard G in Gar? Gardener, like a soft G in Jarfield, the cat. Well, you know? in one of so. my early reinvention moments as a an aspiring liar and writer, um, I answered the phone at home. I was like, hello, Bendinger residence. And my mom was like, that is not the pronunciation. What are you doing? And I was like, but it's so much better. But no, alas. I, can, the, I mean, like we said, um, I, I'm going to do a quick intro, but okay. we really just want to talk to you about the movie and, awesome. you know, all the all the dirt we dug up about you on the internet. Oh, shit. So, I can't um, wait. Oh, my God. I'm scared. Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special episode of Second Chance Cinema. Not very special episode in the sense of Blossom learns about safe sex this Thursday night, or very special episode in the sense of Zach Morris learns the dangers of driving drunk, but very special episode because it's the first time, I believe, that we've had the pleasure of having a writer-director of one of the films that we've talked about on our show. I'm MC Spro. You're here as always. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm, I'm super excited for this. All right. And we are joined by the the, among other things, the writer-director of Stick It, the movie we talked about in our last episode, Miss Jessica. Oh, it's choked on it. Miss <laughs> Jessica ben- Bendinger. Bendinger. We were talking just, yeah. Bendinger. Yeah, we you were talking it. about the pronunciation before we even started. And I was like, oh, I, I just hit the knot right in my head. So Bendinger, Jessica, how are you? You're in good company because Sotomayor did that at the inauguration, if you noticed, with Vice President Harris. I don't know if you noticed. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you're in yeah. really good company. <laughs> I, at every episode, we dive a little deeper into our childhood back when we had more dreams than memories, as I like to say in my cynical way. <laughs> so stick it. It's a phenomenal movie. And the reason that, well, rather the reason that we wanted to talk to you about it is because I think it's the first movie that's been on our show that it it just feels different. It feels Mm. through everything, the direction, the dialogue, the characters, it feels biting. It feels rebellious. It, It had a vibe to it that I don't think any of the other movies that we've talked about have had. So Thank my first you. question. That means you, a lot to me, by the way. I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, uh, of course. Does and it so feel my, like it snuck through and maybe shouldn't have gotten made? <laughs> In feels, some ways, uh, that's it, true. It was, you know, there, it's a, but ask away. It's, you know, it's very much an outlier in lots of ways. It's unfortunate because the, the purpose of the show is, you know, movies that we like to sort of remind people exist and say, these movies are awesome. They just mm-hmm. kind of, for whatever reason, flew under the radar. And Stick It is a perfect example. I remember watching it for the first time. There was a big period of my life where I've had 
clinical depression for a long Mm -hmm. time. And there was Mm -hmm. a big period of my life where I was just really, really down. Mm -hmm. And this movie and what was the other one, Spro? Lakeview Terrace with Samuel L. Jackson were just on TV all the time. And I just remember feeling so comforted watching them just because they were awesome. And so- That means a lot to me. Well, I'm glad it helped you get through stuff. It certainly helped me process some stuff as a filmmaker and as a writer, director, for sure. I mean, I was definitely trying to unpack- some things about my childhood and my sense of that this kind of idyllic, there was constantly this idyllic, I don't know, Charlie Brown thing about the adults in movies for young people that I found really kind of unhelpful. For those of us who have had more challenging childhoods, I kind of wanted to talk about the absent parent phenomenon or the, you know, the parents who do more harm than good, like the, you know, kind of the benevolent mistake, well-intended mistakes or mistakes. I just, uh, that was important for me to unpack. And I hope that res- it sounded like it resonated listening to the podcast. If you want to tell us more about that, because the adults in this movie are one of the things that stand out and they stand out for such good reasons. They're, they're sort of Extremes. There are mm-hmm. the overbearing mothers. My favorite line, eyes and teeth, sugar. Like I mm-hmm. say that to people sometimes, you know, in daily life. And then on the opposite side, you have the Jeff Bridges character who is the coach. And there's such a, a trope of coach characters in Hollywood. And mm-hmm. he's really not that. And mm-hmm. I think that was one of the things that was most endearing about him. So tell us about what you're talking about when you say process some of the adults and some of the yeah. roles these adults well, had. Well, I think there was a trend Certainly when I was growing up, and I think people who grew up in the 80s, those of us who came of age, you know, I was a kid in the 70s and and came of age in the 80s, meaning high school and college squarely in the 80s. There was this odd thing of there was, it was kind of the beginning of the self-help movement and the beginning of therapy and the beginning, the very kind of infancy of people starting to come out of the closet about shit that was going wrong at home or stuff that was going wrong. And I certainly was a big benefactor of therapy and writing was a big part of my therapy. And for me, it was always trying to understand why people are the way they are and why they're doing the things they're doing. But understanding those things from a place of trying to make sense of it and make it whole rather than let's call it perpetuate the trauma or continue the cycle of abuse or damage, right? So writing to me was definitely a way of of whole making. And I'm a matriarchal storyteller for sure. I mean, Bring It On is very much a matriarchal structure. There's no enemy. There's no villain. The heroine is goes on a journey, right? And Stick It really is a matriarchal journey. The, her- the hero is ahead of the audience, right? You don't know why she's so angry. And then at the end, you find out, oh, she has a reason to be. And like, you know, I'm kind of going off the rails a little bit trying to stitch together my own story and the story of the movie. But to me, I think what's always really bummed me out were these simplistic reductions about why people are the way they are, or they're removing the character from ecosystem as if, you know, the character just exists in a vacuum and and there's, you know, it's all nature, you know, it's DNA. They are the way they are because they're the way they are. Well, no, it's nature and nurture. Um, Mm -hmm. It's environment. There's a lot of things going on. And so I don't know, I wanted, I really wanted to talk about those forces on a young life in a way that was entertaining so people could kind of connect dots for themselves. 
I'm sitting yeah. here nodding my head like uh-huh. I'm nodding my I'm nodding my head way more than I do when it's just Spro. And and we forgot to mention that you're also the writer of Bring It On. When you think about the difference between Bring It On and Stick It, the, the obvious difference is is Bring It On is is a cheerleading movie. It's, um, well, it's cultural appropriation and cheerleading skirts, right? It's saying something and we just had the 20th anniversary and there's like a, if anybody's curious, there's just some amazing, beautiful pieces that were written about the movie. Um, and if you go to my website, I think if you click on Bring It On or Press, you can see all the Bring It On 20th Anniversary Press, which was incredible and really felt good. I think Bring It On was trying to hide the medicine and the candy. Like I'm trying to hide the medicine and the candy of a story about socioeconomic inequality and uh, um, yeah, okay. racial inequality and cheerleading skirts, right? I'm really trying to say, make a big point in a slight way that you could almost uh-huh. minimize and marginalize. And similarly with Stick It, it's, it's rebellion and abuses of power, of power and authority and leotards, right? So it's easy to dismiss my movies on the surface of it. But if you take the time and really think like, oh, why is this landing? Why am I really feeling this? I really thought about it. It's not an accident. It's I'm trying to give these characters, you know, for lack of a better word, a gravitas <laughs> that doesn't exist uh-huh. in the genre. And I'm really, really trying to put medicine in the candy for sure. It's conscious. It's intentional. I'm trying to give myself what I needed when I was that age as a filmmaker. I'm trying to deliver to the audience something healing and instructive. So what comes first then? Does Is that you're, when you're creating one of these stories, is it the story? Is it the, the message that you want to deliver and you figure out how to, how to hide? that well I'm always hiding it because you're just to be entertaining you know you're gonna hide Mm -hmm. it right so for me I'm hopefully I'm hiding it well as quickly as possible and you don't know what's coming but that said I think I go where you know I just I published a book called the bring it on book in September it's a screenwriting how to it tells a lot about the story of the writing of bring it on it's for aspiring screenwriters I hated the dogma it's like a screenwriting book for people who hate screenwriting books it's a very folksy, funny look at and demystifying look at how I think about writing screenplays. But one of the things I talk about is like really centering what you care about and getting out of the kind of the colonial mentality of Hollywood, literally, which is obsessed with, you know, this male wish fulfillment and these action movies and this very kind of, I don't know, we've been under the tyranny of this perspective for a long time. And so what I had to do in order to get these movies made was to really conceal what I was doing in a very entertaining outfit, right? But I'm really trying to tell people like... (laughs) It's okay to be different. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to recover from your st- mistakes as long as your heart's in the right place. It's um, it's a great question you're asking. I'm trying to, I, I would love to say it happens very clearly. Like I know right up front, but it doesn't. It's more, okay, here's the, what's the world? Who's the character in this world that doesn't quite fit? And then how can I take that tension of the world and the character who doesn't quite fit in the world that she's in and then pull that narrative through in an entertaining way? And depending on who she is and where she is, that theme is going to play out differently. You know, the movies are cousins for sure. Missy, is it? Okay, before we start, I'm afraid we're going to need to make sure you can do a standing back tuck. Standard procedure, you understand. Standing back, handspring back, tuck, okay? Where's this girl from, Romania? Can she yell? We'll try and I'll do. Awesome! Oh, wow! Like, totally freak me out, I'd be right on! The tour, sure, number one. 
I transferred from Los Angeles. Your school has no gymnastics team. This is a last resort. Okay, so I've never cheered before. So what? How about something that actually requires neurons? Do it. Front handspring, step out, round off, back handspring, step out, round off, back handspring, full twisting layout. Um, one of the things that, and, and I didn't even, I, like I subconsciously knew this, but didn't even, didn't like blatantly realize this until Spro brought it up, was that in Stick It, there's not a real, like a romantic relationship or a romantic mm. subplot. Yeah. The script was sold as a spec, which it actually did this, the movie did something very incredible. And when I was at CAA, when this happened, it had only happened once before, I think with John Lee Hancock, but it did something called the Triple Crown, which is it sold as a spec script with me attached to direct with a progress to production. And those three things are very hard to do. And we did them. And um, Disney was under a very big regime change as this was all happening, um, which is a whole other story. But so definitely there was some attempts to, the, the, the attempts were unsuccessful. Let me just lead by saying that. But there was definitely some pressure from the studio to try and force a match between Poot or Frank and Haley. And that was never the intention in the original script. And, and, you know, mercifully, the DNA of the original spec script was strong enough. And and my vision was strong enough that somehow we survived that attempt. But believe me, it came up. And it came up for multiple people. And it was bone of contention as we got towards the, you know, as we got into production and we're barreling towards it. I think they were like, oh my, oh shit, what did we buy? What are we making? We're making a Disney movie without a love interest. Fuck. Um, (laughs) I think there was definitely some anxiety on the part of the studio around that and the ways in which they regulated their anxiety around it were not great. One of the other non-traditional roles was Jeff Bridges' character. And Mm -hmm. my favorite part of the movie, without a doubt, is when him and Haley are at the diner and Mm. they're kind of talking about... Thank you, Lorelai. That was delicious. Actually, you know what? I'm going to just finish this off here. That's okay. Are you you. serious? Yeah, I heard you were strict about diet, but this is just rude. You piss where I eat, you don't eat. Oh, but you do? Does this mean you're eating my piss? That's disgusting. What a charming young lady you are. Yeah, that's what they say. Plus, I don't suppose uh, college gymnastics is on your to-do list, right? Correct. College gymnastics is one big fat to know. Right. Then in addition to sparing innocent collegiate gymnastic coaches everywhere, keeping it purse money that you might win. Grand Claire. I'm not competing or training again. Ever. Oh, you're gonna piss off the judge and kiss 18 goodbye? The IG Classic is coming up in a month. Now, you apply yourself, you could win some restitution money. It'd get you out of here. What do you think? I think if you showed up at the Classic with me, an angry mob would probably cut your brakes. I got insurance. Oh, really? Well, no, thank you. This sport is a total joke. You know this. Sir, just your life's work and all. No offense. Hey, none taken. You know, there's nothing fair about a girl landing a double pike and losing a tenth because her toes were pointed. Nothing fair about judges who don't have instant replay and they're looking for perfection. Can you imagine football without instant replay? Well, what about the Total rules? Man. What, the code of point? Yeah, I mean, it hey. makes conventionality good and innovation bad. What's the point? Talking yeah. about her 
her options and whatever. And then there's the scene where he le- he's about to leave and make her walk back to the gym. And, sh- you know, it's the whole dialogue where, you know, if you come back, you've got potential and we can work together and try to figure it out. And yeah. then she says something the extent of, and if I don't, and then he just says, you know what? Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Like that to me was <laughs> so so much the antithesis of any sport related movie that I think I had seen up to that point. Why did you write it that way? Because the enemy is always within. I mean, in the greatest movies, the enemy, the real enemy is always with inside the hero or heroine truly. And so if you can effectively do that and show that that is, that is the hero's journey. That's the best kind of hero's journey movie. And there weren't a lot of examples of that because we're so externally focused and we're so looking outside ourselves as we know, is a trap, right? So it was important to me that she really be on a true hero's journey and recognize like she was getting in her own, she was her own worst enemy. And that's what kids go through developmentally. Like if you just look at childhood development and learning about environment and attachment and all the stuff, and we don't have to get in the weeds of psychology, but really you're learning how to manage yourself. That's the best gift you can give a kid in life is teaching them how to manage themselves. And so in saying that to her, he's throwing down the gauntlet of nobody cares. Are you going to care? Are you going to care enough about yourself to do this? Are you going to find what it takes within? I, yeah. And I love that moment. It was a big, it's a good, it's a great moment. He delivers the line. It's so throw it's like the way he does it is just pitch perfect. Isn't it right? We are our own worst enemy. So Spro and I are both in the field of education. And I know that for me, one of the things that that I I try to teach and purport is self-advocacy, which Mm -hmm. is essentially what you're talking about, believing in yourself and knowing that, you know, ultimately even asking for help is a mechanism of self-advocacy. And it Mm -hmm. seems like the Haley character was struggling quite hard to do that. And then it was Mm -hmm. sort of a, I mean, you know, she, she kicked and screamed all the way, but eventually she did say, okay, you know what? I'm not submitting. I'm not giving in here, but I realized that you're right. And my opinion was wrong. And that's like a maturation that we saw Mm -hmm. through her character that led her to greatness. Well, Um, yes. And I'll tell you a little inside baseball with that as well. So um, I studied archetypes. I don't know if you're familiar with archetypes, but archetypes is this idea of kind of these, um, you know, master forms of character. So you have like the victim, the villain, the prostitute, the, you know, the orphan, there are these archetypes exist as like stereotypes almost of characters. And there's a woman uh, named Carolyn Mace who wrote a book called Sacred Contracts, which is a deep dive into archetypes as they relate to to human psychology. And the guy who wrote her archetypes glossary is a master teacher of archetypes. His name is Jim Curtin. And I actually was struggling with what Haley's journey was. And I went and saw Jim because I had read the book and I had met him and was very, very impressed by his facility with different forms of entertainment and archetypal journeys. And I sat with him a couple of times and I was like, I'm just trying to figure out what's the healing. Where does she go? And he says, well, the rebel, he says, before the rebel is healed, before that archetype is healed, they resort to criminal behavior, the shadow side of rebel is criminal behavior. And the evolved side of the rebel is the revolutionary, which is being a shit disturber for the greater good. So he said a a healed rebel becomes the revolutionary. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. You know, and it worked with where I was going with the story as well. But really she's doing things selfishly in the beginning just because she's pissed. 
And then she's doing things, right? It's, you know, for the greater good. She's doing things for this group, things to raise everybody up, right? And and that was, I will say, I did almost like therapy on the movie with Jim to kind of make sure I got that right and had a real sense of the architecture and where she was going psychologically and what that would look and feel like. That's brilliant. Thank I'm, you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very interested in like the behind the scenes and everything like that. So yeah. being a writer director at a time in 2006, you're voted uh, one of the most powerful women under 40 in 2005. And yet you just retweeted an article of the LA Times saying Hollywood still has an inclusion problem with women in cinema. With this being a writer director, a woman writer director, how taxing was it to try and get this movie made? Well, I'd say this in some ways, you know, I, as I said, I hit we hit this triple crown. So I got very mm-hmm. lucky. I was on the heels of Bring It On had been an enormous, unexpected success. It was really an outlier. It, you know, Art of War was predicted to win the weekend we opened. We were number one for two weeks in a row. It was this really hu- huge success. The Art of War with Wesley Snipes? Yes. Wesley Snipes? Yes. That was Box Office Mojo predicted that would be number one. And they were oh, incorrect. Oh, man. I, I wish I would have bet against that. That movie um, was terrible. <laughs> I've never seen it, but it is a good story. So we sold, bring it. So I took stick it out as a spec script attached to direct and Disney ended up buying it. And we sold it in October of 2004. We were in production by the summer of 2005 and we were in theaters by April of 2006, which is very fast. Mm -hmm. That is a very fast trajectory. Yes. The gender stuff. So I was able to use, I guess the leverage I had from bring it on. I was able to convert that using great, I had to use a lot of, uh, you know, I went in with this big marketing, a lot of marketing statistics, because I'm very audience focused versus a lot of my colleagues. I'm really thinking about who is the audience for this movie? Who, who do I want to see this? Who do I want to love this? And I knew that Olympic gymnastics scored higher than the Super Bowl every four years. So if you're just doing simple ratio metrics, like you don't have to be a, you don't have to have seen Moneyball and do Sabre metrics to know, like that's the kind of stat you want to look at. That means that's an underserved audience who is hungry. And so I brought these stats in and everybody was like, oh yeah, that doesn't matter. And I was like, yes, it does. I know it does because cheerleading was my first test swing and I was right. And now this gymnastics, I think, occupies a similar space. The problem was there was a giant regime change, like a foundational regime change going on at Disney at the time. So we were kind of caught in the corridor between a takeover, between the head of marketing wanted the head of production's job. He succeeded. You know, the CEO of Disney would be gone shortly thereafter. It was really like a bloody coup was happening. So they sold the negative to the movie two days before we started shooting. Very unusual. But again, talking about, so this all speaks to your point about bias. They didn't believe in the movie. And similarly, with Bring It On, they're just minimizing it and marginalizing it the whole way. It's not an audience they think about. Um, And legacy media, historically, Hollywood specifically, you know, very specifically in legacy media in general, they, believe it or not, are not data focused. The industry is very much based on, you know, the cartels of the agencies, the, you know, agents, um, relationships with the studios. It's a very inside baseball business that very few people understand. It's got a lot of dog whistles. There's a lot of dog whistles and signaling behavior going on on how and why things get made. But I'll tell you this. It is not about the audience. This has just turned into like a true crime podcast. (laughs) Well, I already did one of those. Yeah. Um, So I would say this. There's a confirmation bias against 
movies about women. And there's a confirmation bias in Hollywood against audiences that might be female, which is ridiculous, as we know, but that just is how it has been. So overcoming all that institutional gender bias, overcoming the industry-wide sexism and misogyny that has been well talked about by much smarter people than me, that's real. I mean, it's just, it, it, when you have a business where the agents are all men, their talent lists are all men, the studios are, are run by men, they want to see the movies they want to see, they're not looking at data. And Hollywood is, I always love to say, Hollywood is filled with data refugees. That is why Netflix happened and whomped Hollywood on its ass. Hollywood was not paying attention to the platforms. It wasn't equipped. It's a very much a horse and buggy business. It's very much a Stone Age business. And they've been, they were caught off guard by the exponential scale of the internet. As crazy as that sounds, when you look at computer graphics and CGI and you think, oh my God, Hollywood's so leading edge. It's not. It's a very old fashioned business that happens to use leading edge tools effectively. But like Marvel has succeeded because they kind of flipped the way the pipeline is done, right? They have their own system of making and releasing movies and they've been really successful as a result, but they were an outlier. The way they did it was very different from the way the rest of the studios and distribution pipelines in town did it. What's um, Marvel? I've never, I've never heard of Marvel. <laughs> so I don't know. Did I, am I, is this answering your question? I mean, think women, yeah, definitely. Been, you know, and the women in power in Hollywood as again, much smarter people than I have written about second wave feminism. Some of the worst misogynists, in Hollywood are women. And it's a, a thing that my fellow, my, a lot of my colleagues and I bemoan quietly, but unfortunately, because they had to fight so hard to get where they were, there is a long, sad history of misogyny, a female perpetrated misogyny at the highest levels in Hollywood. And it's very unfortunate, but it's true. Did you just, did I just hear you crack open a beer? Was that... Did I- <laughs> Trader Joe's sparkling water. Close. Oh, all right. Close. It's oh, fair no enough. alcohol, but I should have. It would have. I should have just said PBR. That would have been much better. <laughs> no. Yeah. Done. You know. That's okay. Usually, I have. There's another podcast we do, and usually I go through about a bottle of wine. So you would have oh, been a good company. My but, friend, so, my best friend, said you should drink some tequila before this. Uh, oh, definitely. I mean, you she know, she knows what I went through, so she was like, "Have a drink before." You yeah. Talk about if you it. if you've got some nearby, if you know, feel free to imbibe. The one thing I do want to say though, before, yeah. I don't know what the market was. I don't usually when we tell people like what our next movie is going to be, I have to explain why, like we did M night, M night's mm. the village. And people are like, mm. really that movie. And we're like, no, 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 yeah. take a rewatch, take a rewatch yeah. this movie, no matter. And I'm on the outskirts of the industry out here in sure. Cleveland. So like, I know line producers and whatnot out here and everybody that I told most of them men, as you just said, it's, it's a very male dominant yeah. industry. All loved it. We're like, we're doing Thank stick you. it next. And he was like, I love that movie. That movie killed. But here's the thing about the movie. That's so strange. Like the, the movie was the number one per screen average opening weekend. And then when it was released on digital, again, you can't access this stuff because we are data refugees. When it was released on Apple digitally, it was number one for seven weeks in a row. Now, the thing with the problem with my movies is people binge them and watch them over and over again. But if you're not given credit for that, right? Like people want the ticket. You know, you've sold the ticket. You've sold the DVD. Great. That's a one stop. But people watch my shit over and over again. I'm a perfect, I'm the perfect category of filmmaker for a, a platform, but nobody has aggregated that kind of data. And people don't really think about it that way in Hollywood. So I've really struggled um, to make that case. 
It's been, it's been super challenging because they're like, oh, number, you know, there's it, it, even look at IMDb. IMDb doesn't even have the right information about bring it on or stick it. It's like the stats are all wrong. So I'm curious because in my on the top of my head, I'm counting five male characters in stick it. There's Jeff Bridges, there's yep. Frank and Poot, and then briefly her dad, Haley's dad, and yep. then the, the rival coach. Chris Frank. John right. Capelos <laughs> from 16 Candles, by the way, who, which was one of my favorite movies. Um, Did not even catch that. John Capelos plays the uh, Molly Ringwald's soon-to-be brother-in-law. I don't care what she's got. Look at her. Please be quiet. We don't want to announce to everyone that she has her period. Guess those guys who thought we had to get married feel pretty stupid right about now, huh, Padre? Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. He's the- yeah, he's the, and he was a famous, I grew up near Second City in Chicago, and we'd go to the free improv shows at Second City, and John Kapalos was like my childhood crush, because we would go watch these free shows, and he was in the Second City troupe then with, you know, um, Jim Belushi and a lot of the people who went on to Second City. So John, it was like my dream to put somebody from 16 Candles <laughs> in. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, in a movie. My, my question was going to be yeah. all of the, the male characters, even so the two friends, they're goofy and they're silly. Dude, I can't believe you didn't name names. I would never do that to you guys. So what happened? Yeah, where are you going? Uh, Juvie. What's that, Houston? Can we visit? Yeah, when you bust me out. You know how I feel about the bus. Consider it done. Well done. Shout out to a crisp. Okay, we have to go, guys. Take my phone. Use it if they don't take it. Yeah, but what are you going to use? Oh, no worries. I'll steal my brothers. I got some really good shots of that jump on there. That shit was legendary. Off the hook. Let it cracker. Yeah. Did you catch that? What? That I'm totally her favorite? <laughs> Dude, why are you always going to bite my moment? It tastes good. Delicious. But they're not, you know, they're not treated like like a Beavis and Butthead type duo. They're not unintelligent. They're not unempathetic. Jeff Bridges obviously is a very layered character. And even Haley's dad in the beginning, Mm -hmm. you think you see it through her eyes and she's rebellious and she's angry and we don't know Mm -hmm. why yet. Mm -hmm. And even he, you know, it doesn't seem like he's like this deadbeat. Like you feel like he's just as exasperated sort of as she is. But he's just exhausted, whereas she's fired up. And can Um, we just shout out John Grice for a second? who's a friend of mine and and my neighbor, he lives down the street from me and I've known him for years. And that exasperation, the way he has to play that is, is, complicated right because we don't know as an audience that he's been completely <laughs> fucked over right so right it, you know he's got he just does it i thought he hit that note quite ambivalently and beautifully in a way that worked the reveal was one of the things that that we talked about quite a bit on our episode yeah. was it was such like a i don't know if there's a if there's like a hollywood word for it but it was like a like an audible gasp kind of moment mm-hmm. where she says mm-hmm. yeah long enough to hook up with my mom obviously it was well thought out and worked beautifully. How difficult was it for you to wait so long with that slow burn to reveal that so late in the movie? That's a great question. I don't know that I remember a lot about waiting for that moment. I knew there was a there was a book called Girls in Pretty Little Boxes. And on the cover of one of the editions of that book is that one-armed handstand. And I always thought, wow, that's such an f- insane metaphor for what women have to do. You know, like you're on a balance beam and you're standing on one hand, you know, and take the picture and, you know, make sure you don't have a wedgie and look pretty and all that stuff. I thought, 
God, if I could capture that in the movie at the heart of the movie, that would be amazing. And then, oh, if I could get a teardrop, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, how how far can you take it? And Darren Okada, the DP, did just a masterful job of making that all happen. And I remember the teardrop shots. Like I remember shooting that with, he had it all figured out and did such a beautiful job. But yeah, it was, um, I don't know. I don't know. I remember Sigur Ross was, we did kind of a pseudo Sigur Ross score. Mike Simpson, who did the score for Fight Club and he was in the Dust Brothers, which produced Paul's Boutique and Tone Loke. And he's a 90s production genius, producer genius. He Tone Loke, did my the God. Score. I haven't thought yeah. about Tone Loke in like Tone 10 Loke. years. Thank you. Thank you so much for putting him back <laughs> Young in MC, my mind. Tone Loke. Yeah. So <laughs> I, think my, I think it just all came together. It was just one of those moments where you had to create space. You had to create emotional space. You had to create space for the ruptures. You had to create space. It just... I don't know. It's got, it's a movie with a lot of competitions in it, right? It's got like the never ending competition sequences, but um, I don't know. I don't remember. I wish I could, I wish I could be more helpful. I knew it was all building. It's all building to that moment. And they're getting more and more pissed at her. Everybody's turning on her and turning on her and turning on her. Right. Well, that's what's so beautiful about it is that like you as the viewer are kind of like, you're almost fed up with her too by that point. And Mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, something's happening, but you don't know, like, how is this going to be redeemed? How is, Mm -hmm. how is she going to redeem herself? Mm -hmm. And you see that up until then, this rebellion is all kind of aimless. And then that scene where she's, you know, talking with Jeff Bridges and reveals everything, it's just like, it completely... Just it pulls it justifies. all together. It justifies yeah. everything. Well, you're you're moving from the generic to the specific, right? And so you're leaning into the archetype of just the rebellious teenager. But then you're if you're trying to explain why somebody is the way they are, you better deliver. And I do know the first draft of the script. And Liz Tigelar, who's a famous showrunner now and such an amazing writer, she read my first draft in front of me. Don't ever do this at home, kids. It's terrible. So she, I had a draft and she read it and she just looked at me. She was like, this doesn't work. You have to re-break the story. So I do know I hit the wall. I hit I hit Matt. I bit Matt hard in the first pass and she had to help me kind of re-break story a little bit and think about it. And so that got there eventually, but it took a while. Uh, speaking of biting the mat, Missy yeah. yes. uh, had not, this was like her breakout. Like she did work before this on TV and whatnot, but this, she had to, uh, this was her vehicle. She had to run with it. Can yes. you describe I, like how much work she put in? And Well, and I was sick on, I was sick on the couch and there was like an ABC show called, it was like a teenage, I don't know. It was, I don't remember what it was called. It's in her credits. Was it but Life was, As what? We Know It? Something like that. Yeah. She was a soccer player yep. in it. And I was on the couch and I was sick and I saw her and I literally sat up off the couch and I was like, oh my God, that's the vibe. That's the vibe. And I went to the casting director, Marsha Ross, and I was like, you have to bring her in. And so then a couple of weeks went by and I said to Marsha, hey, what happened to Missy? And she goes, oh, she wasn't very good. <laughs> and I was like, what? And she's like, well, her audition wasn't very good. I didn't want to show you. And I was like, bring her in. You have to bring her in. So she brought Missy in and, you know, Missy by her own, admit, and I love Missy's like my little sister. I love her. She walked in the door and you're just, and I was just like, yes, you want an actor for me. I prefer actors who just have it. They walk in and then just, they have it They're They are it. It just makes it easier. <laughs> if you're not an experienced director, like I was at the time, it just makes it easier. And I default to that. I like actors who aren't acting. I like actors who are being. And I could tell she had beingness in her. And she was, so she did the audition. We brought her back for callbacks. And then we did a screen test between Missy and somebody the, the casting director wanted. 
and some other actors who were all very, all very good, by the way. And Missy, we, we put up the screen tests a couple of days later and Marsh, the casting director looked at me and goes, I was wrong. You were right. It's her. It's Missy. And she, cause her beingness, when you see it, especially on a big screen, is just like, she blinks. And it was to me very authentically that age and the feelings I was trying to convey. She was just like a godsend. There are things you wish for before big moments. I wish my friends were here. I wish my parents were different. I wish there was someone who got what was happening and could just look at me and tell me that we weren't being stupid. Someone to say, I'm proud of you. And I got your back. Yeah, and she did train really hard. They did like four or six hours a day for, oh my God, they just got the, they got their asses kicked getting in shape. Vanessa, Missy, they worked, I mean, they had to, Vanessa and Missy had to work the hardest. Missy was already an athlete, so she had some, a little bit of a head start, but um, she had soccer calves. You know, and so the the gymnastic <laughs> coaches were like obsessed with her calves and trying to get her calves equal. That was just really funny. Um, but yeah, she kicked she kicked ass. You mentioned that she had it, and I'm glad this is a perfect mm-hmm. segue for this little note I jotted down. She had it. Okay, so yeah. then we have the it there. We have as did John stick- Patrick Amadori and Kellen. I mean, they walked in, and I was like, yes, that they are the guys. Like there was no question between stick it and bring it on. What would you define the it as? Hmm. Oh, that's funny. I think it is probably the medicine and the candy. Let's go horror. What's the it? What's the thing in the culture we don't want to look at or we're scared okay. to look at? Yeah. Yeah. I think the it in both <laughs> cases is this unacknowledged problem. Did you yourself have experience with gymnastics or cheerleading? Yes. So gymnastics is definitely the magma that bring it on comes out of. So I was a competitive gymnast as a kid. I competed. uh, My coaches were Olympic coaches. I competed at a gym in Connecticut called Burial Grossfelds. You know, USA Gymnastics has gone through a lot. And by the way, I think Athlete A has, you know, I was very happy to see Athlete A because I think in some ways, uh, Stick It acted as a proxy for these athletes without a voice and showed them what they could do if they banded together. So I'm very, um, I have to get in the right mood to watch that, but I've seen the trailer and everything. And I'm very, very, yeah. The institutional abuses in gymnastics were whispered about even back then. And I heard whispers about Larry Nassar and, but also the manipulation of the parents. I heard about that quite a bit in the, in the dance mom stuff that you, so you guys so accurately uh, talked about. I mean, that character. So I grew up doing martial arts was my thing. And Mm -hmm. The character of like the, you know, we had the sensei who was also the owner of the dojo, who would, was also the one who pitched the programs to the parents that were going to sign up. And that character of kind of like he's a used car salesman on one side, but then he can be a genuine coach on the other side. That was very reminiscent of my experience anyway. Is that something you dealt with too? Like the coach who is kind of two-faced? Yes, I will say I remembered from gymnastics. So the gymnastics leveling system and scoring system has changed dramatically since I did it. But I got very tall. I got to, I grew like six six inches one summer and my center of gravity and my proprioception changed. And so I used to be able to throw, you know, backflips and do things really easily. And I was landing on my head. And 
I had been third in the state on floor, like in sixth grade and then seventh grade, I was too tall. And and so I had been held back a level. So I was still, it was like being held back a grade and I was devastated. I hadn't been progressed to the next level. And my mom, I remember listening to my mom talk to them on the phone. The truth is I was too tall for the sport, right? It broke my heart, but there was nothing, but I heard them trying to, you know what, keep me in and keep me going. And really it was a lost cause. And we decided to stop because it was too much of an investment of time and money and energy. And I, I was outgrowing it quickly, but it did break my heart. And so I think when I first, so I was a failed gymnast in some ways who always loved gymnastics. And then watching those cheerleading competitions in college, that was kind of the way I scratched my itch for gymnastics in between because they tumbled and they did cool stunts. And it, it kind of, as a young woman, there aren't a lot of places where you can see on television that extreme sports edge, which I definitely got the itch for that in gymnastics. Like when you can throw a tumbling, tumbling trick off the end of a beam or off a high, off a bar and land it, it's, it feels, it's amazing. It feels great. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, from martial arts, like to go up in the air and oh, yeah. land on your feet, there is a real rush that you get from that. So gymnastics Definitely. was, I think gymnastics and also the parents getting off on what, like at the, at the gym I went to, which is very much modeled and stick it back in Connecticut, Grossfelds, they built a viewing room. They had a viewing gallery above the gym. So parents were up in that viewing gallery watching uh-huh. the kids. And having their own little exchanges. And my mom would often report to me, you know, this happened or that happened or. So, yeah, I've been exposed to all sides of it. And I think that's interesting that you mentioned how much you love gymnastics, because one of the things I kind of and correct me if I'm wrong, but none of the girls, none of the gymnasts in the movie actually profess their love for gymnastics. It's just it's it's there and they're good at it. And they're clearly passionate, passionate about it based on the way they train and the sacrifice sacrifices they make in all this but it's not like like a varsity blues where there's this monologue of like you know i used to love football and football was my life and all that you know that's my james vanderbeek impression mm-hmm. so yeah. <laughs> well done well done thank it's you, a very you. different sport it's a very different sport and as we knew from like the chinese scandal where they the chinese olympic team was all made up of kids with doctored birth certificates so they were younger than they were legally supposed to be to qualify for the olympic team i don't know you probably don't remember that but there is a thing about the fear factor with gymnastics. You kind of have to be young and dumb. Mm-hmm. And as you as you start to cultivate fear or develop fear, it's just a hard sport. It is scary and you do get hurt. And so the joy, <laughs> the joy factor, I'm sure it's still there for people. It's a very serious sport and mm-hmm. you're serious and you're indoctrinated into that seriousness and to the consequences at a young age because there are legal liabilities. Right. The, the gyms are all carrying. I, we didn't get into it, but I thought about getting into it. They carry these insurance. The insurance for gymnastics and the waivers families have to sign are legit. Mm-hmm. Like you can break your neck doing what they're doing. And you're and you. You're always you're well aware of that. So I was mm-hmm. trying to convey that in a comedic way. But I did not experience much joy in my gym. I experienced the thrill, but I don't remember there being joy. I remember okay. us being very obedient and very yeah. excited to learn new tricks and stuff. But I didn't, at least I didn't have that. I was very much okay. on the fear side of things. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, you you set up Haley at the very beginning as this thrill-seeking individual with the whole bike chase and the, you mm-hmm. know, the stunts through the house and everything like that. So it's interesting that it's, you know, I don't know that a lot of people would consider gymnastics an extreme sport. I don't know that there's a lot of like Mountain Dew sponsors. Are you kidding me? Have you correct. watched Simone Biles? I mean, I, well, you know, what I'm saying, yeah. And, and what I'm yeah. saying is what I'm saying is that it's 
it's one of the most extreme sports that there is if you actually sit and and watch it and consider what it takes to be able it to do that. It is insanely kind of complex and I can't overstate that. I mean like if you think about bar, I hate it on even bars and they are brutal and you know the montage of her talking about your ribs getting ribs. If you want mm-hmm. to talk about proprioception plus changing grip position, I will tell you I could never master the changing of grip position and that's when they're in a handstand and you'll like maybe do a, a giant and swing around and you've got to turn. That is so hard. That is so so hard. I can't I could never get it. That apparatus was always my greatest enemy. But you've seen it in men's gymnastics. You know, when you watch the high bar or the rings and you see that upper body strength that they have Mm -hmm. doing that women's gymnastics requires the same amount. You're just going faster, Mm -hmm. right? You're just swinging with more velocity. So you're not really looking at the detail of what's going on with their hands. Oh my God. It's so hard. I mean, it's just the intricacies and, and the, the, you know, like in, like in intricacies and like in, like Mm -hmm. in football, if you, if you make a mistake, you know, you blow a play or somebody gets by you or whatever in gymnastics, if you make even a smaller mistake, like you're, you know, like you said, your grip is wrong or you transition even like a quarter of a turn the wrong way. I mean, like you said, that can lead to a a broken micro mistakes. That's why it's so repetitive. And they do those routines over and over again. And they'll, they'll take a a successful routine kind of travels with the athlete for years because it's so hard to get to that level of mastery because the micro adjustments and the ability, most gymnasts are really good at proprioception, which is, you know, knowing where you are in the air when -hmm. you're doing perhaps something that's going backwards and spinning simultaneously, the micro adjustments you have to be able to do in real time to not hurt yourself are insane. And I think that nuance is lost by the explosive power of what they're doing, right? Right. Because they make it look so easy. Navy SEALs, only harder. We're only a half hour into this. And there are like 2,000 Navy SEALs. There are only like 200 elite gymnasts. I guess that's because most kids would rather have a life than spend six hours a day training tricks that could kill you. Look, don't be fooled by the leotards, people. The things gymnasts do make Navy SEALs look like wusses. And we do them without a gun. It's impossible. It's like, it's it's bonkers hard. To me, it was not fun. But it was that thrill chasing thing. Like when you land, like I did. Yes. I, I, I guess I'd call it casual gymnastics for like six years to supplement mm-hmm. martial arts. So what was the hardest tumbling you could do? Well, we called it a flash kick, basically just a layout step out. I think by the end I was able to learn a gainer, which mm-hmm. I don't think is a formal gymnastics. Were you trick. just doing a round formal. off into your layout step out? Were you just doing round off? No, I could do it standing. I could do it. Oh, wow. I could do it standing. Yeah, that was nice. because nice again, work. we were, we were training these for competition forms at, tournaments and stuff so that was around the era this and this was in like the late 90s 2000 early 2000s when the traditional you know katas and forms had started evolving into including more gymnastics and more acrobatics and elements of break dancing and things like that so i was definitely not (laughs) not anywhere near an elite gymnast but i get what you're saying when you say that it's a thrilling it's a it's a thrill-seeking thing to train and train and train and then nail the trick like i remember when me and my team would do that and someone would nail a trick it was always just a big yeah you did it and then it was like Mm -hmm. okay do it again 20 times so you you keep the muscle memory so you don't lose it keep doing it keep doing it but i digress anyway (laughs) no no it's true i see standing foals are a big thing in the cheer community right now and you kind of have to like if you saw the show cheer on netflix they're all throwing standing foals which is bonkers to me to go from they do this thing with their walk back they'll take these aggressive steps backwards and just launch into a standing full twisting 
back flip. It's my, it's amazing how this sport has changed and evolved in so many different variations and iterations. It's really cool. It blows my mind that human bodies can move the way mm-hmm. that I see them on YouTube now. Like, mm-hmm. it, like imagining that back in when I was competing and stuff is just silly. But Spro, you go ahead. You had like a real question. <laughs> so. <laughs> I don't know if it's a question or just kind of like an observation of just, I wonder if it's the fact that it's like an individual sport, like gymnastics, like, you know, golf, maybe diving, where it's you're more competing against yourself that kind mm-hmm. of ebbs the joy out of things. Um, That's a great where, observation. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I never thought of it that way. Where, I mean, you're just trying to get better than you, you know, and and that's that comes with, I mean, that's going to come with a lot of failures. You don't have like the team to celebrate with or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly to figure skating, it has, there's a subjective, mm-hmm. there's that really harsh subjective reality between your performance and the judging you know, which I thought I, Tanya, so beautifully kind of rendered the classism and the, we really do want our skaters to be of a certain quality. You know, we mm-hmm. want to reward a certain kind of pretty privilege on the ice and we don't want it to have a certain amount of roughness or toughness. I really liked the way I thought that was brilliantly rendered that story and that contrast of how much bias we have on these sports where there's right, a judge or a judge is there judging. Well, I'm glad you brought up the judging because I wanted to talk about. So there's a lot to this movie <laughs> about the judging, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and while we were talking about it on the episode, it became clear to me that also what the judgment in movies is the critics at the end. Mm-hmm. So there's second chance cinema is twofold. You got to have a great movie, which you did. <laughs> mm-hmm. So thank, thank you for you. that. And then also it has to go under the radar. And a lot of the problem is usually how it's received. Now, can you talk a little bit about the fact that you you blew Art of War out of the water <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> on your opening weekend and just how it once the reviews start coming out and people just, or men really, male critics, we're getting well, it. We got like, a good review in the New York Times. You so I did. want to say Stick It got a great review in the New York Times as to bring it on. And so I'm going to go for quality over quantity. <laughs> I didn't know our Rotten Tomatoes rating. I don't, you said it was like in the 30s. I was like, it is? I didn't know it was so low. I, th- I didn't, I thought we were higher than that. I think we might need to fact check you on that. I remember taking issue with Metacritic, like the day it opened and I wrote to them. I was like, really? You're going to, you're going to stack rank. You're going to put the New York Times at the same level as like Joe Blogger. Really? <laughs> and Meryl Streep has pointed this out much more articulately than I can, but it is a problem that kind of fanboy culture and people who are not the audience for the movie are evaluating the movie, um, rightly or wrongly. It just, it, I think that what you just said uh, encapsulates the problem of confirmation bias and the problem of gender bias, right? There's a lot of internalized misogyny. There's a lot of unchecked misogyny in the review process. It's just like, it just is a fact. That's not, it's nothing we have to be ashamed of. We got to get away from the shame and blame around it and just kind of try to course correct it. And similarly with the institutional sexism in Hollywood, the institutional gender bias, the institutional misogyny, the pipeline, Hollywood's pipeline is really broke. And they're trying to fix it in, you know, do things that fix it, but the problems persist. Institutional problems are very slow to fix, right? They're still there. They still exist. And I have hope, but yeah, it sucks. It really sucks when you've made this movie and it's that Ann Richards quote of like, you know, you you have to do it like Ginger Rogers in high heels and going backward and, you know, dancing backwards, the Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire analogy. 
it's like nobody evaluating the movie really understands what you're up against as a woman and that you still have to make a good movie and you have to make a, a movie that works regardless of that, right? But the shit I had to go through, the fact this movie is as good as it is, like we were carrying that, it was like running through the coup of Disney at that time, running through that kind of toxic studio culture. And it was really toxic. Anybody who was there at that time will tell you this is not opinion. That is fact. It's hard enough to make a movie on time under budget, which I did, but then to go through, to carry that baby through a World War III at a studio was just not something I recommend to anybody. Everybody was under stress, right? The head of the studio was under great stress. The executives were under great stress and their behavior all, you know, they were acting from fear and behaving not in great ways, in ways I hope they would probably apologize for. So I have I, two- probably hope I pro- hope springs eternal. I'm sure that won't happen. I'm not wait. I'm not holding my breath for an apology. But um, well, you never yeah, know. Just really shitty behavior. Stuff that would have gotten them canceled now for sure. I can tell you right now, the cancel culture now. Were the behavior to have been exposed today, they would not survive it. That's interesting. I was I was kind of wondering. So you mentioned before, I think earlier, like toward the beginning, that Stick It was kind of a product of the time when you know it became more prevalent dealing with sort of these internal emotional problems became more prevalent and more relevant in in media if you if if stick it were to exist now and reflect our world now what do you think would be um the crux of it gosh that's a great question I had to follow up Spros because you called him brilliant and I got really jealous. I had to think I had to think really hard and, and yeah. So that's what I came up with. Thank you for you're forcing me to time travel a bit. Like it <laughs> um that's a great question. What would what would I work? I don't know. I mean, I think confirmation bias. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening right now at the intersection of who we think we are and who we actually are. And I think that all played out for America on a very grand stage over the last year. Um, Mm -hmm. I think who we think of ourselves as, as a country and as individuals has really been put under a spotlight and a magnifying glass in a way that's very uncomfortable for us all. And so that's kind of interesting to me. It's like, there's a great saying, I don't remember who's credited with saying it, but you don't know what you don't know. And so psychologically as a country, I feel like we're being asked to think about that. And so I think that's an interesting place to go. What do we not, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And given how hard that is, what can we start to talk about? What are the assumptions we've made about ourselves as a country and as a society? And where are we really? That's brilliant. The other question I had, this was the not brilliant question. <laughs> when you when you read the review in the New York Times, did you stand up on your couch and Bald. snap your I was gonna ask if you I was gonna ask if you snapped your bra strap like an F you to the, the no. all the all the I've, critics and judges. I've never snapped my bra strap, I don't think off of set. I don't think I've ever done that. Um I know I cried with bring it on and I cried with stick it. I, I just shed tears of joy. That's and, wonderful. Um, yeah, I was very gratified because also you have to remember by the time that find that review finally happened, I had been to hell and back with the studio and had endured. It was as if I made a turd, you know, it was the highest testing movie at the studio that year and across four quadrants, which is again, another very hard thing to do. And at the test screening, which everybody would, that's like what hitched it hitch another movie. I, I did punch up on years ago, you know, when you get really high scores across all age groups, people high five and do a dance. And this was so politically inconvenient 
for the studio regime at the time, the head of the studio, who was a woman, I will say to you, turned to me and said, it's a false positive and walked away. And wow, like know, a vocal minority kind of thing. Like she's like, like the test results, like because her it was not a convenient win and it wasn't convenient. The studio had sold the negative. You geez. just sold the negative on a very successful high testing movie. That's I get it. Psychologically, that's very problematic. I think we all as empathetic beings can understand we all make mistakes. But she just decided to double down and rather than believe what the audience was saying to punish the facts. And it was painful. And by the way, there were witnesses. This wasn't just me alone. This was like, there were a lot of people standing around who were like, what? I mean, with the influx of shitty people we've seen in the past several years, I have no doubt that what you're saying is 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 true. Um, well, thank you. And that's that's it's unfortunate because, it, again, part of the reason for our podcast is to celebrate movies that go under the radar. And it sounds like, you know, no normally we look at them superficially. You're the first writer director we've talked to who's kind of illuminated some of the reasons beyond just, oh, the critics didn't like it or, oh, it didn't make money. You're sort of, you're illuminating sort of the, you know, the, the manipulation of why. And that's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It was a success disaster. It was heartbreaking. I was definitely depressed. Speak about clinical depression. I was in um, the, the head of marketing, by the way, did get the head of production's job. And one of his final um, high fives to himself, I guess, before he <laughs> made that leap, that successful leap, was we had no newspaper ads opening day for Stick It. We were in one newspaper. Now, in a movie back then in 2006, like, parents kind of see what's in the paper to, ju to judge for the weekend. We did not have an one newspaper ad. And so we did well despite that. But like, it just felt like contempt. It was like, he didn't want anything that was under that previous regime to succeed. It felt like very petty, mm -hmm. very um, abuses of power and control behind the scenes. Like, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure, like, I'm going to do the minimum amount required of me. Mm -hmm. To the point that, we, and we had said to Spyglass, the team who had bought them, who, who were the producers on it and who had financed it. Before the movie came out, we were like, we don't think they're marketing this. And they're like, no, no, sit down, little girls. No, we, they are. Like, it's us. We have this deal. We have this big fancy deal with the studio and they're going to run over like, well, we're not so sure about that. <laughs> sure enough, they hit the roof. And it's like, we're having a big meeting on Monday because we can't believe there were no newspaper ads and it was the number one per screen average and we're just like shruggies. Like we tried to tell you and you minimized and marginalized the facts because they were inconvenient, I don't know, for whatever reason. So that stuff is real. I, I'm sorry, everything you're saying, I'm personifying through the judge at the end of the movie. Like, mm -hmm. like I know that you're talking about male and female female figures, but her, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. imagining her. It is, it was both. It was, yes, <laughs> it was everybody. Thank you. It's true. But right, it is, you know, the movie in some ways you can look at as an analysis of Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I know that, that Spro has a, a quick, speed round but i wanted to ask oh please is, yeah is the bra strap thing real in gymnastics yes is a it is it is it was something that a judge mentioned to me and i think i was listening to a, a gymnastics podcast where they took issue with that but it it was in the code of points at that time i don't wow. know if it's still there but yes that is real that's you just talked about pettiness in the boardroom mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Like that's the exemplar for pettiness. Like, and I think the um, commentator too is like, this is the reason nobody watches gymnastics because of both <laughs> like this. Yeah, um, yeah, Tim Daggett. So yeah, 
um, Spro, you want to you want to do the speed round? And then we have one one matter of business that I'm just going to plant the seed with. And I think I might have emailed you about this, but the oh, oh yes, uh, I have it. I have some options for you. You do the, hi- the haiku. Yes. Okay. So Spro, hit hit with the speed round. Go for it. Um. All right. We'll see how speed it is. First, I just want to point out that when we put that we were talking about stick it, your cast came out to like and and share like the Instagram post like. 15 years later, yeah. your actors are still super supportive. And, and so obviously you could tell that it was a labor of love from everybody. Yes. Um, yes. Kind of speed round. I just have questions kind of all over the place here. First and foremost, we're both in Northeast Ohio and you had a Northern girl in one of your movies. And I just want to, was Katie Holmes. We pride ourselves on our work <laughs> ethic. Oh, it was Katie Holmes work ethic. Yep. Oh, oh that's geez. right. First okay. Star. Katie and I only met once when I got the job to rewrite that script. There were had been a bunch of writers on that script, actually. And we met once at Fox and she was lovely. I mean, as you know, she was at an interesting place, right? Because she was post Dawson's Creek pre Tom and she was absolutely lovely. Great. All right. We brought up mental health a lot. And I mm-hmm. read that you are working on a musical called Psyched about yeah. mental health. Yes. Yes. I've been working on it for a long time. I, I think in some ways it's been, I'm mercifully kind of, so I had financing in 2017. Uh, the financing fell through, but I, I, yes, I've been working on this musical about mental health because I figure we're all suffering from a mental health condition that is called life. And I wanted to destigmatize mental health. So I've been working on that since 2013. I did a reading of it. I've been trying to get it set up. And I think it's just been a very hot topic for people. Earlier on, when there wasn't as big a conversation about mental health, it was certainly a hot topic. And now I think there is um, that heightened sensitivity that everybody's having, in, in not just in woke culture, but in PC culture. I think there's some hesitancy to cast it properly, you know, in all all the areas you want to make sure you're checking all the boxes in a way that ha- expresses inclusion and that doesn't appear that you are, you know, that you really are on the level with the condition and trying to talk about the condition right on its own terms and not trying to judge it or make fun of it. Right. So there's a lot of touchiness around it, but yeah, I love it. I love the project. I hope at some point I'll get it made. It's solidarity. It's, it's, it's knowing that because with depression and anxiety, loneliness is Mm -hmm. one of the biggest enemies. So seeing Mm -hmm. that reflected in any sort of media, anywhere outside of yourself, seeing that reflected is very validating. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say I am a survivor. I have PTSD. I've treated my PTSD pretty successfully, but I had um, a break-in in 2012 and I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a dude standing by, trigger alert, there was a dude standing by my bed who I chased out and then I had insomnia for several years after that. And what I learned in the treatment, very successful, I'm very lucky. I was able to get really amazing interventions um, for the C- for the PTSD. But what I learned in my treatment is that I had, I'd actually had it for a long time. And this just kind of triggered what had been kind of childhood trauma that got very reactivated. So complex PTSD is probably the more accurate um, diagnosis or chatter I would put around it now. But yeah, these things are really intense. And by the way, if you have PTSD, like, and you come to Hollywood, good luck, because none of the behavior, you know, in a way, all the stuff I was exposed to as a kid 
gave me some good defense mechanisms around how to navigate, but it didn't, it inoculated me in the wrong way, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like I, it, it wasn't a great vaccination to get for walking into Hollywood. I didn't have any protection. I didn't have the best psychological immunity for being able to handle some really irrational, bad behavior. And I think my inability to regulate my own, like there were definitely moments of dysregulation for me. And by the way, you're in a business context, right? Mm -hmm. Where somebody's attacking you personally, you feel like you're going to die in that moment because your whole mind body is overtaken with, is flooded with cortisol and fight or flight, right? Mm -hmm. I had, cannot tell you how many experiences I had where my PTSD got triggered really severely and I didn't respond super well. Like I honestly can't, I, if you showed me video of what happened, I'm sure it would not match what's in my head, but I've gotten a lot of treatment, a lot of, again, really fortunate, a lot of EMDR, a lot of successful interventions to help Mm -hmm. me learn to downregulate my nervous system and work to, you know, I have to meditate every day. I have to Mm -hmm. journal every day. I have to, um, my friend Jackie says to me, you're on a, you're always on a two day delay when something happens because my training was to, to stuff it down and move on. And I have to know that about myself. So I know all my friends know like two day delay, like something bad's happening. And I'm like, I'm fine. And then (laughs) I'm like, Oh my God. Right. (laughs) What happened? I get it. I get it. These are the things we learn about. And I'm so grateful we're in a context now where people can talk about that openly and without the shame and blame and like fear of retribution for sharing about that. So thank you for um, telling me about that. I appreciate it. uh, It's a good conversation to have. I don't want to go too, too far on a tangent, but it's definitely a good conversation to have. It's the best conversation to have. We all need to be having it more. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So thank you for the opportunity. Sure. Did you have more speed round questions, bro? Uh, I did. This one is personal. This is, I was super excited to talk to you today. Thank you. You're, I mean, it's just amazing. Your films have grossed over half a billion dollars worldwide. And we share, we share a degree in Hollywood. I wrote a movie that got optioned and we just signed our first actor to play the lead. And that is going to be, thank you. That's going to be a Kellen Lutz. And you, (laughs) you gave him his film debut. So listen, Kellen Lutz was going to happen with or without stick it. He was so, um, he's such, so incredible. He's an incredible human being and has charisma and chem, you know, he's got it. He's got the thing. I laid eyes on him. I mean, I saw him on um, the comeback, the comeback. Yeah. And Kellen had a part on the comeback. And I don't know if I saw him on that or we'd already cast him. I'm not sure what, but he was on the comeback and I was like, whoa. Him, him. Yeah, Kellen's just such a wonderful human being. Truly, truly, truly love him. Great. Is there anywhere I could, I'm a script junkie. Is there anywhere I can download your scripts or? Well, you can buy, the the Bring It On book is available and the screenplay to, the real screenplay to Bring It On is in the Bring It On book. And there's actually some deleted scenes, some extra handles on the scenes with annotations by me in the book. And so I'm a big fan of that. And I'm working, I'm hoping I'm going to publish the Stick It book for the 15th anniversary coming April. So hopefully you'll be able to get Stick It online soon. And I apologize. Yeah. 15th anniversary is this April. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's great. Yes, yeah, so I'm How hoping much? there'll be some fun. Pre- the, the movie is beloved and I've been asked to do some press around that. So I'm hoping there'll be a, a nice little lift. Oh, it's a good thing we got to hold you early then because you would like, <laughs> really well. How much um, in the Bring It On book, how much do we get into the backstory of um, Sparky Palastri? I'm a choreographer. 
That's what I do. You are cheerleaders. Cheerleaders are dancers who have gone retarded. What you do is a tiny, pathetic subset of dancing. I will attempt to transform your robotic routines into poetry, written with the human body. Follow me, or perish, sweater monkeys. I want you to think of what you ate today. Got it? Now cut that in half. This is called a diet. Everyone start one today. Well, Darcy, honey, you should stop eating. You see, when you skip a meal, your body feeds off its fat stores. And if you skip enough, maybe your body will eat your ass. Why does everyone have to go on a diet? Because in cheerleading, we throw people in the air. And fat people don't go as high. Come on, come on, let's get back to work. Oh my gosh. I don't think at all. It's funny though. Dance Belt, the Sparky Palastri story is really the sequel I want to do for uh, Bring It On. If I were going to do it's really. And I talked to Ian Roberts over COVID and we really got sparking about what his story would be and where he's at and how, what kind of redemption tour he'd have to go on for what an awful human being he was. But um, well, jazz hands, you know, spirit uh, fingers, jazz spirit hands, fingers. spirit fingers have been like you say spirit fingers and people know what you're talking about so he's you know sort of an unlikely icon to to come out of he, of, of that movie i would love to really see his, i would love to see the behind the music of sparky palastri oh well i'm hoping we can do like a cobra kai with him and do oh dance man belt, dance awesome. belt the sparky palastri story really about his failed awesome. dance career you know into becoming a choreographer and like where is he now and what damage has he wrought you know exactly that's awesome. yeah i think that would be fun and ian seems game so we'll see. Fingers and toes crossed. We'll see if we can. Spirit fingers crossed. Spirit fingers crossed. <laughs> Sparky was named after a friend of mine who passed away while I was writing the script. Then Palastri is the last name of one of my best friends in um, middle school and high school. So I, I do that. Vickerman also is the last name of my, uh, a best friend of mine from childhood. The Sparky Palastri character is brilliant. And I'm thinking about him way too much right now. So <laughs> Peyton Reed did an amazing job directing that scene and Ian Roberts did a phenomenal job performing it. And I think there is more there to explore. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Behind the right? music, you, you nailed it with like the Cobra Kai thing. Like there's talk about an untreated mental health condition. Sparky is a walking <laughs> untreated mental health oh, condition, man. right? You could, you could make a list of, of all the, all the <laughs> he's got going on. Spro, did you have um, one more? You talked about that. Bring it on. The book is for sale right now. It's Hoping on Amazon. To get- Yes. It's on your website as well, which everybody should go to, jessicabenninger.com, right? Thank you. Sure. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and then what else do you have? You have a podcast, I saw, a true crime podcast. Yeah. We did an audio podcast called Mob Queens that came out in 2019. It was nominated for a Webby last year for Best Docuseries. It was, um, the rights were acquired by, it hasn't been announced yet, but the rights were acquired and there's a, a really amazing actor attached to play Anna Genovese, who the 12 part docuseries is about. And then Michael and I are working on uh, setting up our next cycle of that kind of format where we're going to look at somebody's life through the lens of somebody who was minimized and marginalized, who you probably don't know about that well and make you go like, Oh my God, how do I not know about this person? They're amazing. So 
we're working on another couple of those. And so hopefully, um, yeah. That sounds cool. Okay, so now we've come to the culmination, which, as I mentioned to you, the Wheel of Poetry has been the most enduring tradition on Second Chance Cinema. (laughs) The second episode, we landed on haiku, which was our original form of poetry that we did for pretty much the whole first season. Then we decided to get fancy. So we would love to hear a haiku from you about Stick It. Thank you. Well, I wrote two. And I wrote one about the movie and then one for your listeners. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The first one's about Stick It. Okay. Please don't measure a young woman's value by a presentation score. Awesome. Then the, the one for your listeners is, you are what you hate and you are what you most love. So love yourself, please. Wow. That's better oh. than any we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, I mean, wow. That was, it, not once did you mention Jean-Claude Van Damme. Not once. <laughs> Van I'm, Damage. The Van yeah. Damage. Come on. Just, wow. That was great. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for, first of all, just being so willing to come on and, 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 hang out with us for almost an hour and a half and talk about the movie. We, we really can't, you know, emphasize how much we just enjoy the movie for everything it is. And then everything it's kind of become. And we just are really, really grateful that you were able to come on tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And it really, I have to say, it was really heartwarming to have two guys discussing the film. It meant a lot to me and it meant a lot to me that you unpacked it with a lot of thought. You were very thoughtful in the way you talked about it. And I want to thank you for that. It's really, it meant a lot to me. That's that's really cool to hear. And I, I love that you said unpack because sometimes on the show, usually our, our tagline is there's a lot to unpack with these movies. <laughs> Very good. Stick, well, you it did. Is certainly, Stick It is certainly no exception. So definitely check out everything that Jessica is doing now. The Bring It On book, the Stick It 15th anniversary. And yeah, just keep an eye on everything involved in this conversation because this was a lot of fun for us, I know, and and keep moving forward with awesome movies, awesome scripts, awesome podcasts, just awesome everything. And, Thank you so uh, much, you guys. And I, I look forward to seeing you on Instagram and seeing what you do next. Yeah, um, for sure. So thank you so much. Hit it. Listeners, stay tuned after the show for uh, ways you can interact with us. Let us know what you thought. Send questions to us, send messages, and um, hopefully we will see you back here next time. Jessica, thank you again. Thank you, guys. Cool and not a bar. And I'm looking for some action. But like Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. The girls are all around, but none of them want to get with me. My threads are fresh and I'm looking deaf. Yo, what's up with L.O.C.? Just another deeply heartfelt thanks to Jessica Bendiger for coming on our show, Second Chance Cinema, and unpacking more information about her film, Stick It, which she was writer-director of. It was fascinating to peel back even more candy layers and get at the heart of the medicine within. Thank you for listening to this episode of Second Chance Cinema. If you have any comments, questions, corrections, or would like to recommend a movie for a future show, or would like to even be a guest, you can reach us at 2ndchancecinema at gmail.com. That's 2ndchancecinema at gmail.com. We have a Second Chance Cinema Facebook group. You can find us on Twitter at MCNSPRO or check us out on Instagram at 2ndchancecinema. To help our little show out, please tell your friends about us. Leave a review wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe and download each episode you listen to as those simple steps 
effects makes us much more visible in the universe, which makes these fine secret cinematic masterpieces more visible. And isn't that really the whole point? Now go on and have a beautiful day, you wonderful person, you. And one of my favorite sayings is a rising tide lifts all ships. So, in the spirit of podcast unity, here is the trailer for Mob Queens, a podcast that Jessica Benninger worked on. Enjoy your day. The mob, the mafia, the syndicate, the family. Once you're in, you're in, you can't get out. They'll hunt you. Con men and thugs and hoodlums control Gotham. It was just a way of life. What we know about the mafia, it's all about the guys. Any decent guy would never let their wife or girlfriend know their business. But there's another side of the mob in the 20th century, and it's just as dangerous, but in a totally different way. Especially if you're a gay man, a drag queen, or a woman. I never really thought that my family was involved. I think in the village and in the city, like, truth and fiction, there's just no story too outrageous. We're talking about the underworld of New York City's very first drag clubs and the woman. That's right. A woman who ran them. A woman named Anna Genovese. Do you want to be mine? Anna was the goddess. You looked right at her and knew she was a force to be reckoned with. She was an extremely bright woman. She's a tough old bird. Anna Genovese rose from nothing to do something no other woman in the mob has done before or since. She stood up to her husband in the most courageous way possible. Who was this mob queen with the insight and ability to write her own ticket in a man's world? That's what we want to know. Who is Anna Genovese? Was she much more complicit than the family life? My mom forgave her mother for her humanity. I just felt like maybe other people were watching her. And what have two Hollywood writers like us gotten ourselves into trying to figure her out? Everybody makes it about the fucking man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. had agency. It feels like you're like walking through a door that you can never walk out of again. Like, this is like, this is it. I'm Jessica Bendinger. And I'm Michael Seligman. Coming soon. Mob, Mob Queens. Queens. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.